welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. And this is a special episode. We are live at the San Francisco 2017 Basic Income Create-A-Thon. So the Basic Income Create-A-Thons are one of the events that the Universal Income Project organizes. In addition to our speaker events where we have people sharing their experiences and thoughts with the audience, we also give people a chance to actively participate. In Create-A-Thons, we encourage people to come together and bring creative ideas for projects that they think will help to spread awareness and raise support for universal basic income. So the first night of the event, we have folks come together, meet each other, and then give people an opportunity to pitch ideas they have for projects that they could spend the weekend working on. After that, as ideas have been discussed and people have hopefully gotten their creative juices going, people will form into these collaborative teams and then work on those projects over the course of the weekend. So we got a chance to catch up with a number of those folks to talk about what they're working on, what motivated them to take on that project, and where they hope they'll go after this weekend. The first person we talked to was Cordelia Holst. As the conversation around basking has progressed, there's been more and more focus on what is the right way to talk about it. How do you frame it so it really resonates with people? But maybe it's not just one right way. Maybe there's actually different approaches that should be used with different groups of people. Cordelia's group at the Create-A-Thon was looking to explore just that, developing a messaging tracker that allowed them to see how different audiences might respond to different ways of talking about basic income. Welcome, Cordelia. Hello, thank you. So why don't you start by just telling us about what you're working on here at the Create-A-Thon? Well, um, our team is working on putting together a a tool for the basic income movement. Um, We would like to make some kind of a tracker that uh, measures public opinion about basic income in the U.S., Um, both awareness and uh, people's perception about basic income, um, attributes that they associate with basic income in a positive way and attributes that they maybe think in a a negative way. Um, And also as an aspect, if we if we manage to sort of figure it out, would be um, a resource for basic income activists to be able to test their messaging. Mm -hmm. So looking at different demographics and locations in the U.S., we think there's going to be a wide um, difference in in reaction. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that some messages that uh, really appeal and resonate with some groups might um, might have the opposite effect with other groups, and it would be beneficial to the movement to be able to test that on a small scale before putting effort and, and money into into that. Yeah. And we'd like the especially the tracking part to to have like a, a long term perspective. So. We can see now where we are with how many people in the U.S. are aware of the of the concept and and where where we'll be after ten years of activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So, what motivated you to to take on that project? Was there particular past experiences or some particular line of thinking that that made that really resonate as as something that was needed in the space? Um, well, I, I don't know if it already exists, but my thinking. Uh, I, I'm born and raised here in California, and um, my husband's Norwegian, and we lived in Norway for the past 13 years. Um, and that's a, that's a really long time. I know the culture very well. I speak the language. Um, I worked in advertising there and in marketing, and I had my own businesses, and we had our child there, and yeah. So um, when we move back now this summer, right before the election, um, 
I was starting to see really uh, a lot of, of course, uh, real differences in Norwe- from Norwegian culture to American culture, naturally. And one of the things that struck me is that um, Norwegian culture, for the most part, people have a consensus about like basic things, like we all agree we're going to have a social safety net, and then they can sort of discuss how or like how much. Um, but in the U.S., it seems like we don't all agree on even really basic issues, like should we all have health care or should we have a social safe- safety net? Um, and it felt like to me that um, a lot of the the conversations that are the sort of things that I'm learning about in the universal basic income movement um, talk about pilots and the pilots in, in the different countries around the world and... and um, a lot of the pilots measure um, behaviors. When you give people money, what do they do? Um, what happens to their health? What, do their children go to school? Are they able to improve their sanitation? Are they able to um, invest in, in um, a tractor or you know, some sort of uh, entrepreneurial um, uh, venture? Um, and, and while I think, of course, like like recording and and, uh, documenting and gathering data about people's behavior is very important. Um, Sort of looking at the difference between uh, American perceptions about um, safety nets and sort of the rest of (laughs) like European perception about safety nets made me start to think, I hope we also as as a group of activists are measuring people's perceptions and not just behaviors. Um, because if we're going to be able to have policy discussions, then we need to know what are people thinking about this, what um, what sort of prejudices do they have, or or what inspires them, or makes them feel um, interested in, in the movement, and and how regional is it, or or I don't know, um, related to income or political affiliation. Sure. And so. tell us a little bit about how you do that. So you've got this great idea. What does it look like in practice? Well, that's what we're trying to work on today. So there's a, a lot of really talented people from different backgrounds, and we're, we've been you know, working the whiteboard and trying to see what, um, like mapping out what free services there are available, what paid services there are available, um, how much would it cost over the long term. So we're doing a lot of information gathering on that right now. Mm-hmm. And what's your hope as far as what will come out of this? Where it could go. Well, I'm not sure, but I hope that uh, that um, uh, there could be some sort of consensus in the movement that, like, we need this because we don't want to um, we don't want to make a mistake with our mes- messaging that sets us back 15 years. Like, we don't want to say the wrong things to the wrong people and have them sort of clutch onto some talking point that should have been tested. Um, so I, I really feel like universal basic income is very critical for America, uh, especially. Um, like in Norway, I know there's also a movement, Borgilum, um, it's called the Citizen Salary. But they have such a good social, uh, not social safety net that uh, it's not as critical, in my opinion, um, as, as what's happening here. So I'd really like to see uh, the, the movement not make a, a misstep. Next, we spoke with Angie Kim. Most of the basic income discussions take place at the national level. What would a basic income look like across the entire United States or perhaps Finland or another country? 
Angie and her group went a little bit smaller, thinking about the municipal level, discussing how a basic income could work across an entire city. And this, in many ways, is more feasible. And realistically, we're probably going to have to see smaller basic income trials at this level before we go full national. So here's Angie Kim. Angie, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Happy to. Uh, So to start with, can you just tell us a little bit about the project that you're working on? Okay, so today, um, as part of the Create-a-thon, our team is working on um, basically trying to figure out if we could create a demonstration project that would be in a municipality um, to actually try a basic income effort. So yeah, take us into that a little bit. what would that look like? Have you talked about funding levels or like target populations or anything like that? Yeah, well, that's, that's, all, that's all the hard stuff. So, well, firstly, the motivation for that was um, it feels like the time is right. Um, there are, um, you know, at a, especially at a localized level, there's a lot of interest around like how do we build safety net support for our residents? Um, and I think it's become even more resonant um, given what's happening at the federal level. Um, A keen awareness and um, appreciation for the role of government in those um, activities, but also an awareness that um, to a lot of, to a large extent, the the efforts that we already have around lifting people out of poverty, those services are so fragmented and have not been actually as effective as the numbers might say in terms of how much we invest in all of those for actually giving those people a chance to um, uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, et cetera, all these things that seem like these American idealisms that really just don't happen for the poorest among us. So, um, so the impetus for that was, well, if we're going to talk about basic income in a way that goes beyond concept and theory, then probably our best partners are potentially um, regional level municipal leaders. And in specific, the way we're, st- we're starting to think about um, how to tackle this is how do we talk about potentially um, two things? Um, are there particular agencies within local government that seem best suited to the basic income concept? And then secondly, which agencies in particular might have enlightened leadership who are already somehow in this discourse and or maybe coming to this solution um, through other channels. So for instance, an example was raised today around um, City of Portland's very nascent efforts around trying to address a a growing homelessness um, uh, crisis Hmm. where um, the idea that they have put forward is that they would um, incentivize homeowners with property, land property, to be able to build a mother-in-law unit that would be that would um, that would house someone who's homeless for a period of maybe multiple years, and at the end of it, that the homeowners. Um, uh, incentive is that they would then have rentable income, and therefore there's a win-win-win. Now that's not basic income, but the idea, the concept that of what's arresting about that is that 
it's an example of a city that is thinking about the most basic of services, right? Um, stable housing um, as a solution for homelessness. Um, how do you incentivize people who have assets to be able to deploy those assets in a way that makes sense? So, so early conversations today were around like, okay, well, clearly municipal governments have departments of homelessness. They also have human services. Um, child and welfare services, even arts and culture? Is there something around um, sharing resources uh, across agencies potentially um, for something like this? And was this a project that you were thinking about in advance of the Create-A-Thon coming into it, or is this something that came up once you arrived? It came up just mostly because I met someone who says, I work for a, a city government, and suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, there's so much potential. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure if ever, everyone immediately thought that, but it was certainly one of those things where it was like, oh, we have people here who actually are in positions where they could do something about it. If nothing else, at least start conversations among elected officials and their staffs. So we just heard about how basic income might work at the city level, but what about even smaller? What if you could have a small group of people that could decide on their own that they wanted to support one another with their own basic income. We next spoke to Greg Slepak, whose project Group Income is aimed at providing the tools to allow people to do just that. Greg, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Mm -hmm. So to start off with, why don't you just tell us a bit about your project? So we're working on something called Group Income. Group Income is a tool. It's basically a system that random groups can use if they want to provide themselves with a basic income. The idea behind it is that a lot of people seem to want a basic income and the mentality seems to be that, well, we need to uh, have a political battle in order to have it. And in many ways, uh, I support a, uh, an entire country having its own basic income program. but. I don't think we have time to wait for that kind of thing to play out. We kind of need, as Scott Santon says, uh, we needed basic income yesterday. So group income is a way that any group of people, any group of friends or family can get together and simply use what is effectively a decentralized accounting tool to manage their money and provide themselves with a basic income or uh, less than a basic income or more than a basic income. Uh, we call it a income, the minimum income. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about how that would work. Let's say the three of us want to you know, ensure that we each have $1,000 a month. Or if that's a bad example, you can give me a new one. But, that's a great example. OK, yeah, so how, how, would, how would we plug into group income to make that happen? So you, one of you would sign up uh, and create a group. And when you create the group, you're presented with a screen where you effectively lay out the constitution of the group the rules that the group agrees to follow. So some of the questions that we ask you are, well, first of all, the most obvious one, what's the minimum income that your group is trying to guarantee every member? That's probably the most important one. Uh, but there are other important questions like, how many votes does it take to approve a new member to the group? What percentage uh, of the group has to agree to, do, uh, to add someone to the group? Or what percentage of the group has to agree to remove someone from the group? 
And the entire idea of group income is uh, based around this concept uh, of voluntary relationships between people. So there is nothing forcing you to stay in a group. Uh, although some groups uh, we expect might want to add something like that. So they might, for example, um, choose as part of their constitution to actually add uh, a legally binding contract uh, as part of the membership process. But that kind of decision making is totally up to the groups and not up to us. So once you create the group, you, you can now invite people to join your group. And they can look at what you're doing, and they can choose to join. And the second that somebody joins your group, you, you have sort of uh, less power. Let, let's, let's put it that way. Uh, you are no longer the dictator of the group. Then once you have uh, an initial group going, uh, you can decide uh, to contribute to the group. Uh, some amount of money. And you can say, for example, well, this month I made $2,000 and our income is uh, $1,000. Well, in that case, you have $1,000 left over. So first, the idea is that kind of like on an airplane, when you have to, uh, you know, say they always instruct you that, you know, in the middle, uh, you know, in the event of an emergency, put on your mask first before putting on someone else's mask. Well, it's the same sort of idea. Uh, you take care of your income first. So any money that you receive from some work that you're doing first goes to you to take care of your income. And once you're taken care of, you then are in a position where you can help other people uh, if they need help. So in this case, you made $2,000, the group's income is $1,000, and you have now $1,000 uh, that you can contribute to the group. And the kind of basic accounting algorithm simply does its best to raise people who are sort of at the very bottom in terms of their income and raise them starting from the bottom and then together uh, you know, to, to the next lowest person, et cetera, and then kind of raise them all up together to that same income level line. And it does this by uh, taking contributions uh, from th that it receives uh, from the other members. And members can choose to add additional information to any um, contributions that they give. For example, they can say, well, this year I'm contributing $600 and my income this month was, you know, some amount. Uh, or they can just make a contribution and not specify what their actual income was. Often when someone's introduced to the basic income, it tends to be a fairly wonky discussion with a lot of questions and potential problems brought up, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are other ways to introduce the basic income, and one very creative one came out of the Create-a-thon, and that was with a group led by Jason Kruger. They created a board game that introduces the concept of the basic income in a way that's fun and almost a little bit subversive. And so you're seeing how it works without even really thinking about all the potential issues and, and hurdles it'll have to go through to be a, a policy that takes place at the national level. Jason, thanks so much for taking time to chat with us. You're welcome. So to start off with, can you just tell us a bit about the project that you're working on at the Creative uh, at this Create-a-thon, um, I uh, suggested the uh, something to do with creating a game version of how to introduce the concept of basic income. Um, so I, I've been playing uh, some uh, what they call non-zero-sum games or cooperative games. Hmm. Uh, it's just kind of a, mm -hmm. a new field, it seems like, uh, of game development. And 
there's a lot of interesting stuff out there I've looked at the pandemic mm-hmm. yeah I've played yeah. that one yeah uh, and the one uh, one of our team members suggested which was um, Forbidden Desert which mm-hmm. is another uh-huh. pretty close to what I've stolen a lot of ideas from Forbidden Deserts <laughs> yeah um, the plan is to make this completely open source mm-hmm. trying to use resources that would be really cheap to access at like a local zoo. Mm. We're, we're working on a Scrabble board, and mm-hmm. we're using two decks of cards and some poker chips right now. So we're trying to keep it to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've developed some player uh, information, so we've developed character classes. And we've uh, to represent the diversity of the economy, we have uh, we broken it down into four classes. Uh, the, the explorer, the one that takes the high risk. The farmer or developer, when it takes explored land, converts it to mm. uh, something that can produce resources. Uh, the scientist who comes on and automates mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. the farmer can move on and farm other fields. So they, uh, so it's this chain of things that you like to see in a thriving society. So we try to capture broadly in these classes those elements, and then last and not least. We've created a role for the logistics person, the, the one that could be called uh, either the banker or the politician or whatever. They deal with the finances and they deal with the actual distribution. Hmm. Um, making that person sort of the center of gravity, like you have to remain, that person sort of coordinates and distributes the basic income each round mm-hmm. that, that pays for the resources to develop. Yeah, that's really cool. So in the... Like in, in a game like Pandemic, you are trying to achieve a goal, which is to save planet Earth from a, a terrible disease. Uh, what's the the goal, or sort of is it more just like maintaining a productive society? Uh, so, to the the fictional context that is it's set in uh, right now is an alien planet. So we, mm. we're colonizing mm. a new planet. So one of the new star systems we've seen, like you know, uh, that has the seven. Earth-like bodies. Right, yeah, it's very exciting. We sent a spaceship out. Well, (laughs) things that people have to consider is that the people that are arriving there probably will never have known anything of of Earth. They they will either have been born and raised inside the ship or they're in test tubes or whatever it is. So, And then when you get there, you have to provide them a basic plan to grow and thrive. And I think, I, I really sincerely believe that you'd have some kind of basic income system to bootstrap your economy on a new planet, because to help, if you want, if you think there's benefits to to having a current, like a social currency that where we exchange things like units of money, currency, um, to provide access to resources, but also to develop things and to thrive together. Uh, and what the game is trying to show is that the more balanced it is, given the needs and risks and everything else that's going on in the game board, how do you? survive a hostile alien world and we create hostile hostility through environmental factors there's a storm that basically runs around the board causing sand dunes to build up and then eventually unpassable territory and it can destroy your developed developed land and then so it's, it's the, we're trying to come up with the game mechanics right now to balance out you know, the destruction with the ability to come together with these specialized classes to develop like a, a, a thriving civilization hmm. So it's the name of the game is uh, Thrive or Die. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and that's what kind of the gist of what I think basic income could be a, a foundational leg mm. of a thriving society. Not the only leg, but a very foundational leg, mm-hmm. like a basic. We we want to guarantee that basic 
necessity, make sure you can survive, you know, calamity and some other things will support you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we, if we, if we, if we coordinate and plan and, co- and cooperate together well enough, we can survive anything. Yeah. So that's sort of like. So what, what was the motivation for this? What gave you the idea to, to take on a project like this? I was up to my own devices and I thought, I've been playing uh, some interesting board games with uh, some friends that was introducing these kind of concepts. I thought there's like, mm-hmm. there's something to it that you get a more intuitive feel mm-hmm. when you're playing through the game. You can see how economies could work differently than they do right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that may help to introduce it uh, a bit better like you can do it at a party I'd like to have it so that anybody could set it up if they at a party uh, Mm -hmm. maybe we could develop like an actual edition that's like where instead of playing cards we have like specially made cards and all that stuff Mm -hmm. so you could still that money maybe go into the system to somehow be plugged back into developing it and promoting the idea yeah yeah Um, and then connecting people when they play this game they can give them like we'll have a website and give them resources to link to and all that so if they're interested and they and they can, you know, forward it to their friends and all that kind of stuff and spread the word through playful uh, learning, which I think is the easiest way to learn for people. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of, like, boring. I thought about explaining a complicated, because I do love uh, Wonkery, I do love policy. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. about, like, how to fix the system. You think about that a lot. Like, what are the policies that are hindering? What, what could we change to make things easier? But expressing that is really boring to most people. And mm-hmm. you make a policy want paper and just publish it, it's kind of, it doesn't have a yeah. connect, it doesn't engage people yeah. very easily. Like I'm unlikely to spend <laughs> two hours on a policy paper, but I could definitely spend two hours on a game. Exactly. Right. And so I think playing the game gets you habituated to the idea, uh, you, and it's, it's, it becomes easier to think about the mechanics of it in your own way, like mm-hmm. how you mm-hmm. understand it. Uh, I like the fact that it shows that a diversity of roles are required. Mm-hmm. Um, so your specialized class has benefits. So it's like a kind of like a D and D character class. You have each character class has its own specialization that makes it easier for them to either farm or develop or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they can all do all the other roles too. So that you know they're this is a lot more expensive to have the politician you know farming. Mm-hmm. Or it's, right. you know. It certainly seems like a cooperative game is very well aligned with <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The view of what, why we should have basic income and, yeah. and what it could do. It sustains a diverse economy. Right. So these are the minimal elements we could come up with to show the diverse economic mutual benefit thing. Mm-hmm. And we're, our goal is to create uh, each round to encourage a lot of collaboration and cooperation to figure mm-hmm. to plan ahead. Mm-hmm. Like if you do that and that and that, you know, like you figure out your moves together ahead of time, yeah. then you can mm-hmm. plan it out and achieve more than if you just did things individually like you usually do in a, a zero-sum game where you're fighting to be the winner of the board or whatever it is. So it's all of you against the elements, essentially. <laughs> yeah. One of the big takeaways from the Swiss campaign for basic income was the giant visuals that they managed to produce. Their big coin dump in front of parliament at the start of the campaign and their creation of the largest poster in the world, saying, what would you do if your income were taken care of? But what about here in the U.S.? What about the visuals that we might have in this country? The final conversation we had was with Misha Addy, who shared information on the project she was working on around a big public basic income display here in San Francisco. Well, Misha, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. So to start with, can you just tell us a bit about the project you're working on? 
Sure, we are creating a visual awareness campaign over the weekend. So we're taking a massive piece of basically like butcher paper, it's like thick butcher paper, and writing a universal basic income slogan on it with a hashtag that'll lead people to an Instagram campaign. That's very cool. I know you were polling the, everyone at the Create-A-Thon for a slogan. Have you settled or at least got a few contenders? That was the hardest thing to do. <laughs> we had, first of all, we had a lot of contenders sure. on the Slack channel. We had dozens of ideas. And I think one of the issues is an issue that probably basic income encounters all the time. It's like, what is the, what is the meaning of basic income? Like, what is the problem we're solving? Um, so there were folks who said, you know, we should be really specific and say like, you know, we want to grab people's attention, but what if you had a slogan that says, what if you had your basic needs covered, which is what basic income does. And there was another camp that said we should be more aspirational, like a Super Bowl commercial. Um, and we're talking about the American dream. We're talking about fundamental principles of freedom and liberty. What if we talk about that? And we sort of met in the middle by saying, what basic income allows you to do is the most interesting thing about it. Hmm. So it is, it is, in essence, it's a means to an end. But the end, in, in our view, is sort of like its character. So if you are free from scarcity thinking, you're free from relentless competition, you're free from feeling you know, oppressed or on the receiving end of, of whatever your boss is doing, whatever your company is doing, whatever the outside world is doing, and you feel empowered to do what you want to do, you are able to express your character in a way that you're not hmm. right now. So we, we decided to, to, I don't know if I'll do the big reveal now, but like, <laughs> we settled on a slogan that's basically, who would you be? Who would you be with basic income under the premise that it's not just about what you would do, although I'll sell you in a second, like I would do things differently if I had basic income, <laughs> but it's about the type of person you're, you're empowered to be Actually, that's one of the slogans I voted for is because I think that is very provocative to think not just like, oh, yeah, it'd be nice if, you know, like my, my rent is like pretty much taken care of if I got that money. It's, it's you know, much more utilitarian. Um, but then you to start to think about those bigger questions of like, whoa, like what if I didn't need my job? Yeah. Like, I think that that inspires a whole new set of ideas. And one of the things that I mean, I think this was yesterday when we had the discussion, it was probably it's kind of like a group discussion where people talking about why they were here. Um, there's so many existential philosophical points that this movement touches on and a sort of, you know, people, we want it to be uplifting. We want it to be light. We want it to be accessible, but this is like at core, a serious thing, right? This is like, why are we here yeah. as humans? How far up the Maslow's hierarchy have we traveled? How close are we to actually self-actualizing given that, Unlike our ancestors, unlike, you know, even, you know, many of our grandparents, we have permission in this society to do things and be people that we couldn't have been 100 years ago. What are we doing with that permission? Can we create an entitlement so our children feel like, you know what, I don't want to be someone who goes to work and, and, and gives my grandparents and my children the short shrift because my boss asks more of me. I want to be the type of person who puts... The people around me first like do you have permission to be that type of person in our society and I think basic income is saying maybe a hundred years ago you didn't but but now you do yeah 
that was something just recently someone tweeted at me saying that basic income is a terrible idea. If we had basic income, we never would have come down out of the trees. <laughs> and it's like, that's exactly the point. <laughs> this is what we, yeah. why we came out of the trees, Yeah, dude. we're out of the trees now. Right. We can think about things differently than we did back then. And it's interesting. I mean, this, this sort of ties into my own personal story. So I do believe that there's probably some segment of the population that would just sort of take it easy. But the natural desire for human beings to feel valued by others is core within like the human psyche. And if you're sitting around doing nothing, even in a basic income world or not, you're not going to feel that value. Basic income is also basic for a reason. It's not, um, you know, Elon Musk income. <laughs> like we don't yeah. talk, you know, we don't talk about it that way. Which is, it's just enough to subsist. So if you if you care about donating or you care about traveling or you care about going to Mars or whatever is planned for, for folks with discretionary income, you still have to work. But if you care about you know, your neighbors or you care about elders or something like that, you are empowered to do that. So I think this idea that everyone's going to be lazy is sort of dismissive of human nature, of that thing in, in each one of us to do something that makes us feel valued by others. Well, some really interesting projects there. I'm yeah, absolutely. really excited to see where those go. Mm-hmm. So this has been a special episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we very much encourage you to subscribe to iTunes or the podcast subscription service of your choice. And uh, also, please encourage your friends to check out the podcast so more people can hear about these exciting projects and uh, you know what's going on in the movement. Thanks to our producer, Eric Davidson, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.